Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we simulate weird and wonderful science in your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. For this special AI edition, I spoke with Toby Walsh about machines behaving badly. His new book about the ethics and morality around artificial intelligence. Well, if the computer is this important, why haven't I heard more about it? Well, the computer is a relatively new thing and we're just really getting an appreciation for the full range of its usefulness. Many people think it's going to spark a revolution that will change the face of the earth almost as much as the first industrial revolution did. What happens when machines behave badly? Who's responsible? Toby Walsh is a professor of artificial intelligence at the University of New South Wales, Sydney. He's written a new book called Machines Behaving Badly, looking at all the ethical challenges that AI throws up. I spoke with Toby by Zoom while he was travelling in Europe and began by asking, artificial intelligence, is it creeping into everyday life? Is it something most people encounter? It is, but in some sense, it's a somewhat hidden part of our everyday life. People aren't, I think, so aware that it's AI. But every time you're getting directions from Google Maps or you're asking Siri a question or getting a movie recommendation from Netflix, that's a little AI that knows something about the world, about how to navigate, uh, about people's preferences. And it's slowly eating into more and more parts of our lives. And I think it's it's reasonable to expect it's going to be, um, you know, like electricity. It's being compared to electricity. I think that's quite a that's quite an apt um, description because it's hard to imagine our world today without electricity. It powers everything. It provides power and it provides the data to everything. And indeed, any electrical device is going to have at some point some AI sprinkled on top of it to make it a bit smarter, whether it be your toaster, your front door, or your light switch. They're all going to be a little more intelligent. They'll be sitting there waiting, listening to your commands and trying to anticipate your needs. Something came up a few months ago. There was a story in the press about a boy playing chess with a robot and (laughs) he got hurt and they blamed the boy. Uh, They did. He, He got his finger crushed. I think broken even um, by the robot. He responded too quickly to the robot's move. And so the robot uh, didn't anticipate there was a little boy's hand in the way. And he he, he did live to play the next day. But yes, as you pointed out, the human, not the robot, was blamed. Uh, And actually, it's a good example of what we can and can't do. I mean, a computer can play absolutely fantastic chess. The world's best chess player, Magnus Carlsen, doesn't stand a chance against a, a decent co- computer program. And indeed, the, the chess world is at the moment being rocked by scandal of people cheating using such chess programs. And one particular player, notorious player who's been beating the world champion by, it seems, artificial means, as far as, as we can tell. So computers can do the things that we find very hard playing chess. That's something that we think requires a lot of intelligence. But something that all of us can do, even even those of us who can't play chess, which is walk up to a chessboard and pick up a piece without breaking the your opponent's hand, is something that a, a computer 
struggles to do. And it, it actually has a name. It's called Moravac's Paradox. And Moravac was a famous roboticist in the United States. And he came up with this maxim, which actually does describe the rather paradoxical success that we have, limited success we have so far with, with AI, which is that the hard things for, for us, like playing chess, are easy for computers. And the easy things for us, like picking up a chess piece, are surprisingly hard. We underestimate what the product of millions of years of evolution have given us, the, the fact that our motor skills that have been compiled over, over those millions of years of evolution allow us to do that almost with our, our eyes blindfolded. If we assume that a little boy wasn't really responsible for his safety in the presence of a big robot, who would be responsible? Oh, well, the people who turn the robot on. Clearly, <laughs> the people are responsible. I mean, you, you can't hold the robot responsible because a robot you know, doesn't have feelings, um, doesn't experience pain. I mean, what can you do with a robot? You can turn it off. The robot doesn't care. You know, next time you turn the robot back on, the robot will be just the same. So they're not moral beings. They're, they're not conscious. They're not sentient. They, they don't really feel guilty. They, 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 they don't have our ability to reflect on their actions. And so, you know, the, the one actor that's in this scene is, that can't be blamed is the robot. But the people who did put the robot in place and turned it on and didn't put adequate safeguards in place are the people to be held responsible. And of course, I mean, the child is not held responsible. We don't hold children responsible. We, you know, rightly so. We're the many countries, most countries, there's a, a, an age of crim criminal liability. And beneath that age, we don't believe that children should be held responsible. Similarly, computers are not held, should be held responsible for actions. With the computer, as with any tool, the concept and direction must come from the man. The task that is set and the data that is given must be man's decision and his responsibility. There were some stories in the Australian press also that face recognition was sneaking into various shops here, department stores and hardware shops and things without people understanding what was happening. Yes, what were Bunnings thinking? <laughs> using facial recognition i mean they claim that they sought consent but it's the usual way that tech companies seem to seek consent and not in a way that you can really easily opt out or even know you know, supposedly there were very um small little signs placed <laughs> in the store and there was a web page i believe you had to go to to actually read what was going on and bunnings were using it as a way of supposedly Try to identify people who had been suspected of shoplifting and the like and excluding them from their store. But it, it's not clear that you know people were really aware. And it does take us to a you know a world I think that we already know about. It's a world that authors like us, that um, you know, George Orwell and, and Aldous Huxley have, have warned us about, a, a world where we're living in a panopticon of surveillance, where wherever you go, real time, you can be surveilled. Now, it's not, it's not that we haven't had surveillance in the past. I mean, we've, we've had CCTV cameras and we've surveilled people in the past, but it changes the nature of, uh, of the surveillance because you can do it at speed and scale and cost that just was not possible. You can, you can surveil people in, in, in real time. You can surveil a, a city or even a, a nation in real time. And you're starting, sadly, to see that happen in places like China, where these technologies are becoming omnipresent. And, and it, it changes the world. I mean, it used to be if you went out on the street, you were essentially anonymous. You could go about your business without people knowing what you were doing. 
but now you know at least we have the technology if we so choose to do that we can we can you know if you if you went on a demonstration if you go on a demonstration complain about whatever it is that you're passionate about black lives mattering or the climate emergency or or the me too movement or whatever it is you were in a crowd of a hundred or a thousand people you were anonymous but now that's no longer the case if we wanted to we could identify you and persecute you for what you're doing so it really does change the world that we're in and i'm not sure certainly in a society like australia that the world is so dangerous you know that, that we need to survey people as they go about their legal business i mean the you know the ostensible reason often given for this is you know national security and the like well I am, I'm happy to put up with facial recognition and, and these technologies at, at the border where, you know, I want to make sure that, you know, bombers aren't getting on my plane and the like, and then we aren't letting terrorists in. But I think just going down to the shops, is it really necessary? Is, is the world, is, is, is Australia so unsafe that we need to do that? You know, could you opt out? I mean, you've got to be able to buy food and, and go and get your medicines from the pharmacy and so on so you know how could you opt out of this world if you decided that you didn't want to be surveilled and what about when it gets the profiling wrong and it says you are of in china if it says you're a Uyghur and should be set aside or if it says you're a shoplifter at bunnings in the past or whatever it says and it's not you it's got it wrong yeah yeah exactly i mean it's it's a, it's a dangerous technology when it works because it lets you surveil people at scale. And it's a dangerous technology because often it doesn't work. And there's plentiful e examples of how the technology is not very good on um, people of color. It's not very good, not, not as good on women as men. And it's even worse on women of color. And so there's plentiful examples of people who have been arrested, wrongfully arrested, because of mistakes made by facial recognition. There's a wonderful, funny story in, in um, China of a famous person who got fined for jaywalking because his photograph was on the side of a bus on an advert and the camera picked his face up and thought he was jaywalking. You know, it was just his face going down the side of the road on the bus. Um, <laughs> and he got sent an automatic fine for jaywalking. And it could be worse, of course, in China with social credit, he might have his freedoms curtailed about what he's allowed to do. Yes, the, you know, the whole social credit scheme of shaming people and, and denying them the right to buy long-distance plane, ticket, uh, plane tickets and yes. leave the country or for your children go to, the, to a, a school of your choice or your name you know, flashed up on lights in the centre of town to shame you, all being done wrongfully because the, the system is not completely perfect and indeed makes many, many mistakes. One of the things that's been very big in the last few months is the text-to-image generation online with stable diffusion where you can just put in a text prompt, describe something, and get a, a fake photo or an art piece done in a particular style or, or a random style or a caricature. There's moral dimensions to this as well, isn't there? Because they're not rewarding the original artists that they scan the images from. Yes, there's a whole host of, of ethical challenges here. Um, you know, whether the people whose whose data, whose images we being used to to create um, these data sets that, that from which they're working, um, whether they're being appropriately rewarded and then um, 
the people whose jobs are going to be displaced. I mean, if you're a graphic designer, I've started, I'd start to think a bit, you know, a bit nervous that there are these programs going along that can do the sorts of things you used to do and be paid to do, um, whether you're going to be thrown out onto the um, unemployment list. Um, uh, and then there's, uh, you know, what these images are used for. I mean, it's very easy to construct images now, deep fake images that might be used for nefarious purposes. Um, so there's a, a whole host of um, issues, and you know, um, also there's issues around um, bias. If you if you ask, you know, for a picture of a doctor, and it always throws up pictures of men, never throws up picture of women. Um, you know, is that perpetuating these these cultural and social biases that we've been trying to tackle in our society? So uh, yes, <laughs> and it's interesting to, to to look at you know how some of the some of the companies behind these programs are are responding to it to begin with for example OpenAI, which was behind the gpt3 actually didn't release the program they said they were exploring the ethical challenges and then there was a wait list and you had to apply and argue what you were going to use it for and but now there are a host of these programs being released by companies saying well we just want to get it into the hands of people open um, source uh, open source it knowing full well that you know, there are potential harms being committed with these programs. It's that offensive content and racist content and sexist content it's, will be produced. And as as you said, also all the artists whose work is, these programs are trained on are not being rewarded, and and it's not clear that they've you know people have really given their consent for their for their images to be used. And yet, it's such a powerful tool if you <laughs> don't use it for immoral purposes. It is. I mean, but it's big business. And Microsoft are now releasing this as a, a way of you to generate, you know, clip art in in their office suite. They're they're going to make money selling this stuff. It's the sadly a, a repeating story that we've seen through the you know the history of this field of technological innovation, where where you know it's our data that's being used to make other people wealthy. You're listening to Ian Wolf on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Here's a Chevrolet ad from 1935. When the car leaves the factory, only one thing is needed for safety, and that's a careful driver. If the manufacturer could equip every car with an automatic driving mechanism, the car would always do just what it should do when it got out on the road. With such a driving control, the car wouldn't pull away from the curb without signaling or looking back for oncoming traffic. With such a driving control, the car would keep in line instead of weaving in and out of traffic. With such control, it would always get into the proper lane before turning. It would always obey boulevard stop signs. With an automatic driving mechanism, the car would stop before cutting into traffic. It wouldn't pass other cars on dangerous curves. And it would always come to a stop before crossing a railroad. They call them self-driving cars, but there's no self-driving the car. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, who is the self doing the driving? And... Again, they kind of seem to want to blame the pedestrians when they get hit. But that that seemed to be a problem before we had computers driving cars. 
I do find the the way that we're developing autonomous cars to be really quite baffling. You know, it's worth pointing out the immense benefits, right? So a, a thousand people are going to die in Australia in the next year in road traffic accidents. It, it is a, a terrible cost on our society. That's a, it's a billion dollar cost every year. Each of those road traffic accidents cost a million dollars to just pick the pieces up. Plus the human tragedy. You know, if you survive birth, it is the leading cause of death in Australia to the age of 30 or 40. The most likely reason you're going to not survive those years of your life is that you die in a road accident. And almost all of those road accidents are caused by humans. They're caused by human drivers uh, making errors. You know, we drive when we're tired. We drive when we're drunk. We're overconfident in our abilities. It's not mechanical failure. It's not acts of God. I mean, there's a few times trees fall into the road and things like that, things that you, you couldn't anticipate. But most of the time, it, it's humans. It's human stupidity causing those errors. And that that will go away. I mean, once we have computers that are laser focused on driving, that don't have our overconfidence, no exactly braking distances, can see the road with many different sensors, it's going to be a much safer world and, and it's going to go close to zero. And we're going to look back and think, Wow, it was like the wild west back then. People, we let people drive cars. Can you imagine? So there's a great benefit that's going to come, but equally, it's not glim to me that we're going about it in a very responsible way. I mean, the endpoint is a very good one, but the way that we're trying to get there is, seems to be very irresponsible. I like to use an analogy, right, which is drugs. I mean, if I said to you that there's a there's a drug company. It is um, testing its um, prototype drugs on the public. It hasn't got ethics approval. There's no oversight of what's going on. It's actually killed several members of the public who had not anything to do with the trial. And you'd say, well, wait a second, Toby, that sounds, that sounds ridiculous. So surely that is not allowed to happen. And, and it, that is not allowed to happen. We have strict rules, strict laws about how you can test drugs on the public and strict oversight of the process to ensure that the drugs are entirely safe. Uh, but that's what's happening with autonomous cars. They're, they're being tested on public roads and pedestrians and cyclists and other people are being killed by autonomous cars who have nothing to do with the experiment. And there's, there's very limited oversight of what's going on. I think, you know, we should learn from history here. I mean, we've, we've not, the first, not the first time we've developed new means of locomotion. If we go back 100 or more years to when we invented aeroplanes, well, aeroplanes started out very dangerous. Then it started, you know, planes were fall out of the sky. They kill lots of people. But we made aviation the safest form of travel, but you know, by various measures, by you know, passenger kilometer, it is easily the safest form of travel. You are more likely to die driving to the airport than getting on a plane wherever the aeroplane is going to. I mean, that's how safe flying is. That you know, whatever your flying journey is, it's you're more likely to die in a road traffic accident going to the airport. And, and how did that happen? That happened because, well, there is immense oversight of the aviation industry. There are, you know, Civil Aviation Authority and bodies responsible for ensuring that planes get safer, that whenever accidents happen, that they get independently investigated and all the lessons are shared with all of the bodies involved, not, not just the the manufacturer of that plane, but all manufacturers of planes and all operators of planes. And that's not happening today with, with uh, autonomous cars. There's, there's no sharing of information. There's, there's no independent oversight. The only information that um, autonomous car companies are sharing is the information they steal from each other. 
And certainly the, there's no independent oversight. And we don't really know how safe autonomous cars are at the moment. You know, there isn't the independent data to know how many kilometers they're driving and what the accident rate is and, and so on. And so, um, you know, we, we really need to change to a world where that, that happens. And so it, um, safety can be like a, a ratchet. Um, you know, aviation is so safe because anytime there is an accident, you explore why the accident happened and then advice is released to try and ensure that, that at least that type of accident never happens again. And so that's where we really need to get to with autonomous cars. And we already have a commercial car in the Tesla that has an autonomous mode that they don't recommend you use autonomously, but they've been selling it and selling it and people have been using it the way it was obviously designed to be used. And it's not very safe and it's being tested, just as you said. Yeah, it's wonderfully called autopilot or yes. to, to, <laughs> to, to make you think that it, it is you know entirely capable. And the problem is that as humans, we're very trusting. And you know, if it works once in you know good circumstances, then then we easily lulled into a false sense of security. And and Joshua Brown, the, the guy who was killed in the first autonomous car accident in his Tesla, was lulled in that false sense of security and and you know wasn't looking at the road and was supposedly watching a Harry Potter movie on a portable DVD. And his car drove into a truck that was turning across the road that the car hadn't seen, and the sensors in the car hadn't seen. Again, I mean, I think we have to be protected from ourselves here. Because you can't, I mean, if you're sitting in a car that's driving itself, but you're paying attention, you can't, humans just naturally won't pay attention if it's not needed. Even if you think you are, you'll, you'll drift off into other thoughts and you won't be watching the road. You won't. And, and so to be able to take back control in the sm small amount of time when the car gives up and decides it doesn't know what it's going to do, and it's hurtling along at, you know, 100 kilometers an hour or whatever, you've got such limited time to be able to you know, get your situational awareness and work out what to do, that it's not responsible to suppose that, that you can do that. And so actually, I suspect how autonomous cars are going to and, and vehicles are going to turn up into our lives is that they're going to be special places where it will only be autonomous cars. Well, that's already the case, actually. So we have some of the most autonomous minds in the world here, that there are places where, you know, all the trucks are autonomous and people know to keep out of the way. And it's a very, it's a very controlled environment. And similarly, I imagine there are going to be special places. So for example, the high-speed lane of, of the freeway, where if you want to go in the high-speed lane and get to work quickly, you have to have an autonomous car. The autonomous cars will all slipstream in convoy with each other, or equally, there'll be the you know, congestion-free uh, you know, electric car, um, city center congestion charging zone where you're only allowed in if you're an autonomous car, and it, they, it's all carefully controlled. And so that, that will simplify the problem that you'll be... I think one of the real challenges is, is you've got to be able to combine co autonomous cars with humans. Right. So if it's all autonomous cars, it's quite easy because they'll all talk to each other, uh, V2V uh, radio communication, and they'll all be able to coordinate their activities. But the challenge is dealing with humans, dealing with the uncertainty and unpredictability of humans. And so that period of transition is the difficult one. And so I think we'll probably solve that problem by having places where you, you actually not, don't allow humans to drive. You only allow autonomous cars to drive. 
That was part one of my interview with Professor Toby Walsh from the University of New South Wales in Sydney about the ethical challenges of artificial intelligence and his new book, Machines Behaving Badly. Tune in next week for the second and final part of the interview. In discussing the problem of simulating the human brain on a computing machine, we must carefully distinguish between the accomplishments of the past and what we hope to do in the future. Certainly the accomplishments of the past have been most impressive. We have machines that will translate to some extent from one language to another, machines that will prove mathematical theorems, machines that will play chess or checkers, sometimes even better than the men who designed them. These, however, are in the line of special purpose computers aimed at particular specific problems. What we would like in the future is a more general computing system capable of learning by experience and forming inductive and deductive thoughts. I confidently expect that within 10 or 15 years, we will find emerging from the laboratories something not too far from the robot of science fiction fame. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Are you a scientist, artist, biohacker or maker who'd like to be interviewed about your work? Would your company like to sponsor Diffusion? Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please subscribe to the Diffusion Science Radio channel on youtube.com slash c slash diffusionradio and rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the community radio network, including Radio Blue Mountains 89.1 FM in New South Wales, 8 C in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2MVR in Nambucca Valley, 3MVR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, City Park Radio 7LTN in Launceston, Tasmania, and 2XXFM in Canberra. Diffusion is narrowcast on Indigo FM 88 in northeast Victoria. Diffusion is syndicated globally on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than a thousand previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Make a donation through paypal.me slash ianwolf, or join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolf. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography, collecting. Why study science? 
study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.